Before I get into the episode, I want to give you a bit of a warning because, after all, we are talking about cannibalism. Listener discretion is advised as some content is not suitable for young children. Just wanted to give you a little heads up. Now on to the episode. Why, hello there, all of you lovely Curiosity Cadets. Welcome to Little Curiosities. I am your host, Kendall Long, and here on Little Curiosities, we talk about all those little things that spark our curiosity throughout the day, from why is night vision green, to do real life zombies exist? Psst, the answer is yes. Go check out my zombie bugs episode if you haven't already. So some of you may know me from a show called The Bachelor, and on that show, I did a number of things that made me the quote-unquote quirky one or quirky one. For those of you that listened to the show, you would get that joke. And it was a while ago, so no worries if you forgot. Here's a little memory refresh. And if you didn't watch it, good for you because you didn't see me cry, and that's probably for the better. So I played ukulele to a seal. I had a hometown date where the then bachelor and I made taxidermy mice, which I admit was controversial, but something that seemed to stir up even more controversy on the show was a question book that I had brought with me. Now, for those of you that know me, you know I have a knack for collecting things. I collect books, animal bones, owl pellets, and of course, taxidermy. And I've been collecting questions since I was in college. I've gathered over 200 questions in this little question notebook that I have. And while on the show, The Bachelor, in an attempt to get to know The Bachelor just a little bit more, I asked him a few of the questions. But specifically, it was one question inside of the book that seemed to disturb some watchers of the show. And of course, it was the one that they chose to air because who doesn't like a little controversy? Who doesn't like a little taboo subject? So here's the question. If you were visiting an isolated community where the local tradition was to eat someone who'd passed away, would you try human meat? AKA, would you be a cannibal? Of course, to me, this seems like a perfectly reasonable question, but people freaked out, and I get it. Consuming the meat of your own kind is incredibly taboo, especially since my answer was, of course I would. So now, before you judge, I did conduct a poll on my Instagram, it's Kendall Long, to see if you guys would uh, try human meat, and here are the results. So 7% of you said, yes, just for curiosity's sake. And I'm going to say, I'm proud of that 7%. I'm proud of you. You want to try it just to try it. That's where my mind was at in the beginning, at least in the beginning before I researched this episode. You'll find out why later. And then 19% of you said, yeah, you would try human meat if it was a life and death situation. So if you were starving to death, maybe if you were marooned on an island, you would eat it to survive. And honestly, I'm surprised that number wasn't bigger because uh, I would, I feel like I'd 100% try human meat to survive. And then a whopping 73% of you said, absolutely, freaking not, do not put human meat near me. So I understand, okay? And after researching this podcast episode, I have more of an understanding as to why people wouldn't try human meat. I'm not going to give too much away now. Also, I did ask you guys if you had any questions about cannibalism, any comments to inspire this episode of Little Curiosities all about cannibalism, and you did not disappoint. Meg Stottle, Meg with three Gs, <laughs> said, The Andy's plane crash. I just watched a 2020 episode on it and was wild their thoughts. I'm guessing she was saying that their 
their thoughts on cannibalism was pretty wild because when it's a life or death situation, yeah, your brain goes to some pretty dark places. And I do talk about survivor cannibalism in this episode. So thank you so much, Meg Stoddle, for that comment. We definitely get into the mindset of people who are trying to survive, you know, life and death situation. Also, Lucy Giles, 1961, said, studied it in uni and will never eat spam because apparently it's the closest thing to human flesh. We do talk about what human meat tastes like in this episode based off of what cannibals have said it tasted like. And some people do say it has like a ham flavor, like a pig porky flavor. So uh, (laughs) that kind of is disturbing that spam tastes like human meat. I can't say I remember exactly what canned spam tastes like, but yeah, maybe I'll try it just to see if I can get close to trying human meat without actually eating human meat. Is that disturbing? I don't know. (laughs) So thank you for that comment. We will definitely talk about consuming and the taste of human meat in a bit. DV maybe, bee spelled like the buzzing bee, that's so cute, I love that, states, in some cultures like those in New Guinea, this was actually spreading kuru, prion disease. Now, thank you so much for commenting on this. I went into a whole dive of knowledge about kuru. It is mind-boggling because literally your mind gets boggled when you get the Kuru disease. So we are 100% talking about that. Thank you, DV Maybe, for inspiring that little spark of curiosity. And one of the last comments I'll mention is from Kote90, what would you do? I had a lot of you asking, what would I do? Would I eat human meat? And that is exactly what this podcast episode is about. You know, I ask, will I try human meat in the beginning of this podcast? And you're going to get my answer at the end of this podcast. Yeah, you know what? I have a little bit of a dilemma because part of me really wants to try it. Part of me is such a curious cookie. But another part of me after researching this was like, oh, there's a lot that could happen from eating your own kind. And so you'll find out why. Maybe I'm now a little bit hesitant. Maybe I'm more sure than ever. You know what I mean? But I will say that there's a recipe for foot tacos in this episode that really uh, gets me salivating. (laughs) So at risk of disturbing you any further, let's get into this episode. In this episode of Little Curiosities, we will be covering a lot about humans munching on humans, from the laughing death, to Frankenstein masked cannibals on the prowl, and foot tacos— Yes, this one is as disturbing as it sounds. So let's bite right into this fleshy sandwich of an episode of Little Curiosities, cannibalism. Let's first talk about the many different kinds of cannibalism because there are multiple reasons why one would be tempted by the flesh of their own kind. There's religious cannibalism, so many tribes such as the Aztecs and other communities practice this. There's learned cannibalism, where one is raised in and around eating people and it's basically the norm, survival cannibalism, think the Donner Party, auto-cannibalism, aka eating yourself, and finally, pathological cannibalism. It's a rare mental disorder where a person compulsively consumes human flesh, like Jeffrey Dahmer. Though I'm not really going to dive into his story on this episode, I'm going to talk about a few other cannibal killers, because I feel like his story has just been exhausted by all of the social medias and press these days. So don't worry, I won't rehash that story for you. But what I am going to do is break down each kind of cannibalism with one or more examples of each, and hopefully we can all gain a better perspective on this horror movie-inspiring practice. 
There are plenty of accounts of cannibalistic communities documented by explorers and ample evidence that prehistoric human beings partook in eating their own kind. It was practiced in the 19th century in some isolated South Pacific cultures, and cannibalism is still believed to be practiced even today in the jungles of Indonesian New Guinea by the Karawai which is located just north of Australia and contains some of the least explored and isolated areas of the world due to its thick jungles and mountainous terrain. The Karawai people are rumored to kill and consume male witches, known as Kalka. Though cannibalism did and does happen, some accounts of man-eating from explorers in the past are kind of widely debated, with some historians saying that man-eating accounts may not have been as common as we have been led to believe, or even true at all. On the other side, the people that believed cannibalism did take place in many native cultures argues that the fact that there are so many detailed accounts of these gruesome acts means that they must be true. There was even a recent study on the subject of Christopher Columbus's claim that he fought cannibals, locally known as caribs, while on his expedition to the New World. These accounts were initially thought to be fabricated because researchers claimed that there was no caribs in the Bahamas when Columbus landed on the islands in 1492, but new evidence acquired by studying over a hundred skulls now reveals that there were caribs in the Bahamas at the time Columbus was there. So, did he fight them? Maybe. Columbus wasn't necessarily famous for getting his facts right, and Columbus also thought manatees were mermaids, so who can blame people for questioning him? This all being said, I tried my best to only include accounts of cannibalism that are well-documented and widely accepted. As taboo as the subject is now, it makes sense that most cultures want to stay as far away from this morbid past as possible, but as I said earlier, it did very much exist. We get the word cannibal itself from the native people of the Caribbean islands in the Bahamas that were rumored to eat human flesh. They were locally referred to as the Caribs, and other neighboring native communities were incredibly fearful of them. A mispronunciation switched the word carib to canib. There is also a theory that it switched to canib as a sort of slang for the Latin word for dog, canis, aka canine, because there were stories that these people had the faces of dogs. Not sure what I think of that one or what is accurate, but there you go. But thanks to many a people-eating story, cannab eventually became the root for the word cannibal that we use today to refer to the eating of your own kind. Side note, these people are also the reason why it's referred to as the Caribbean Islands. Although cannibalism isn't practiced by the Caribs in the Bahamas today, there are still other native cultures that chomp down on each other, even as recently as the 1960s. For some cultures or small religious groups, cannibalism still is embedded in their religion. That, of course, brings me to religious cannibalism, the first kind of cannibalism we're going to be talking about today. I recently heard about a type of monk in India called the Aghoris. They were nicknamed the Cannibal Cult of India because they are rumored to have cannibalistic rituals. One of the most important rituals to the Aghori is the Shav Putra. So for this ritual to take place, there has to be a corpse present, which unsurprisingly, is hard to come by because most people in India are cremated. But the Aghoris do manage to get a hold of bodies. They find them in the Ganges River. A cremation can be expensive, and for those people whose families are too poor to afford them, a water burial or a burial in the sand along the river is the second best option. 
And I did read that, unfortunately, the practice of disposing of a body in the river or burying it in the sand along the banks has grown in popularity since the pandemic because it's said that the price for cremations has exploded since then. Is it just me or is it so bizarre that India's holiest river now has hundreds of dead bodies floating amongst its currents? But for the Agoris, this proves ample opportunity. The bodies are plucked from their watery graves and are meditated on. They're then decapitated because they believe the head holds the most energy. And in some cases, the flesh is eaten by the Aghoris. They keep the skulls as a reminder of the impermanence of life. And I honestly can't think of a better reminder of my own mortality than a human skull. Another Aghori ritual is to smear their faces with the ashes of humans' cremated remains because they do cremate the bodies after they're done with their ritual, so that's where they get the ashes from. And kind of unsurprisingly, most of these cannibal monks are shunned by the local population of India because they're taboo black magic rituals. You know, they're they're spooky. Like, I'd be afraid of them if I walked in on these rituals. I'd be like, what the heck is happening? I'm going to be as far away from them as possible. But the Aghoris see these sacrifices as a way to appease and bring them closer to their Hindu god Shiva, who, among other things, is the god of destruction. Although this group is mostly feared in India, it's said that a true Aghori keeps themselves away from killing and will never hurt anybody. So the Aghori is probably the best kind of cannibal to come across, right? But do you know what cannibalistic group you wouldn't want to come across? The Aztecs. Okay, we're going to talk about the Aztecs. I love researching the Aztecs. They are impressive in so many ways, but I'm going to mainly talk about their cannibalistic rituals and some pretty taboo stuff that they did. So this man-hungry nomadic culture dominated the lands of northern Mexico in the 16th century. The Aztecs also regularly sacrificed and cannibalized humans in the name of their religion. So they would fall under the religious cannibal, just like the Aghori, but their practices were a bit more bloodthirsty, quite literally bloodthirsty. Archaeological findings confirm that ritual human sacrifice did take place in the Aztec Empire, sacrificing more than 20,000 individuals per year to appease their gods. And most of these sacrifices were men and prisoners of war, though it wasn't unheard of to have women and children sacrificed as well. To understand a little bit more about why the Aztecs did this, Part of the reason was because they believed human sacrifices would prevent the world from ending. Their belief was that since their gods had sacrificed themselves in order for the Aztec people to live, humanity would only continue to survive if they paid their debt in blood. (laughs) One of the rituals to appease the god, and I'm not going to lie, I might pronounce this wrong, so sorry if I do, Huitzilopochtli, the god of warfare and the sun, involved the victim being covered in blue paint and laid on a sacrificial stone. This stone kind of looks like a large, round, elaborately carved stone with a circular depression carved in the center, big enough for a head, and a trench-like carving from the center that I'm guessing was to drain the blood from a recent sacrifice. An Aztec priest would chant and raise a blade to the sun before cutting out the heart of the victim— This heart was often said to still be beating. It's kind of like that scene in Indiana Jones, The Temple of Doom. It's one of my favorite movies, but in this scene, the guy takes the guy's heart out and it's beating in his hand. If you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about, but that's kind of what I 
picture happening. And can you imagine being the sacrifice? Looking at your own beating heart? That's a pretty gnarly way to go. Anyway, after the sacrifice is made, the body is pushed down the long, steep stairs of the pyramid, and it's either cremated or given to the warrior who captured the sacrifice. The warrior would either send the body parts of the sacrifice to different people, kind of like how Vincent Van Gogh sent his ear in the mail, or eat pieces of the body as part of a ritual. I did read in an article that the captor did not take part in the consuming of their prized sacrifice because they were considered the father of the sacrifice and they couldn't eat their own son. I don't know. I don't think fathers sacrifice their sons either, but that's neither here nor there. On that note, let's move on to another form of people eating people, learned cannibalism. When I was looking into this, I don't know if I really saw a huge distinction between religious cannibalism and learned cannibalism only because cannibalism does seem to integrate itself within certain religious practices or certain ritual practices, but learned cannibalism is embedded in a society's culture and it's passed down from generation to generation. An example of learned cannibalism can be found in the secluded highlands of Papua New Guinea. There, there was a tribe of around 11,000 people called the Foray. The foray were literally unknown to the modern world until the 1930s when gold prospectors stumbled upon them while surveying the area for little shiny gold nuggets. Fast forward 20 or so years later in the 1950s, and researchers couldn't help their curiosity and made their way to these communities and found some very unique practices taking place. And yes, of course, one of them was cannibalism. But it wasn't your old run-of-the-mill murderous rampage cannibalism, as we talked about earlier. It primarily took place at funerals. So in many villages in the area, when a person died, a huge part of the grieving process was cooking them up and consuming them. And I know this sounds horrendous to us, but the foray argued that they would rather have the body eaten by family members and friends who loved the deceased rather than by maggots or other flesh-eating insects. And it was normal and a part of mourning their loved ones. And I mean, you know what? Sure. I, I can kind of rationalize that. You know, I can see how for the 4A people, they were raised with this and they saw it as a way of respecting their loved ones. Don't, wouldn't say I would do it myself because I probably wouldn't, but yeah, I can kind of justify that. So one part of this cannibalistic funeral ritual involved removing the brain, mixing it with ferns, and then cooking it in tubes of bamboo. And I have to say, researching this sort of cannibal cookbook made me actually take the question I asked in my question book seriously. Now, I know I said I would partake in a type of ritualistic cannibalism, but if someone passed me the brain equivalent of a candy straw, I don't know if I would be so keen, you know what I mean? And I was more and more convinced that cannibalism honestly wasn't for me as I researched further on the topic, and you'll see why in a bit. It does seem that nothing was put to waste for the foray's ritual cannibalism. Every part of the deceased body was fire-roasted and eaten, except for the gallbladder. I did a little bit of research on the topic of gallbladder consumption, and it's what's inside of the gallbladder that makes it so unappetizing. It's because the liquid inside this little sac next to the liver is called bile, and you guys know what bile is. It's basically just digestive fluids, not appetizing at all. I found a lot of articles warning about consuming animal bile because it's so high in toxicity, 
But I also surprisingly found that there are a lot of cultures that do eat the gallbladder and the bile inside. I found a video on YouTube that gave a recipe for a Filipino soup called Papa Eaton that people say has a sour taste due to the bile from a pig's gallbladder. Though it appears it's eaten in some places, bile is also said to have the smell of vomit, so yeah. For the foray, I'm guessing that the gallbladder was avoided due to that fact, and that it is somewhat of an acquired taste, but everything else, including the liver, heart, brain, etc., was consumed. So it was the women of the tribe that were the ones who primarily practiced in this cannibalistic ritual. Occasionally, a woman would pass some of the dearly departed delicacy off to the children. Boys would participate when they were kids, but when they came of age and joined the men of the tribe, they were encouraged to halt the practice, since it was believed that only the women and their bodies were capable of taming and housing the dangerous spirits that came along with a deceased loved one. So sure, given that cannibalism with the foray only took place as a sort of way to mourn their dead— Though I can't completely understand it myself, I can see the good intentions behind it. So it was looking like my answer to the if you visited a tribe whose tradition it was to eat human meat, would you try it, could be somewhat justified, until I came across accounts of Kuru. Kuru was an incurable brain disease within the foray community. Kuru, aka the Laughing Death, resulted in sufferers losing control of their limbs, bodily functions, and emotions within a year of contracting this condition. They couldn't feed themselves, walk, or even get up off the floor on their own. A look at the brain of those infected showed it riddled with holes, kind of like Swiss cheese, so maybe that's why it was tempting to eat. Um, anyway, this disease primarily hit adult women and children. And I'm sure those of you smarty pants out there have already caught on to where this is heading, because as it turns out, this strange disease could be traced down to the consumption of dead people. And a test was conducted by the U.S. National Institute of Health to solidify researchers' suspicions even further. And in these tests, chimpanzees were injected with human brain tissue from those infected with Kuru. And as researchers suspected, a few months later, these same chimpanzees started developing Kuru symptoms. I'm just going to say I personally hate research conducted on animals, especially those as intelligent as chimpanzees. But that being said, it does a great deal in saving many, many lives, not justifying it in the slightest, but we just have to acknowledge that. So moving forward... Anyway, after news spread of the cause of the mysterious Kuru, the foray's cannibalistic funeral feasts came to an abrupt end, for obvious reasons. However, because the disease can stay dormant and take decades to show its effects, Kuru cases didn't completely disappear until as recent as 2009, where the last person known to have the disease passed away. This isn't the first time cannibalistic tendencies led me to mysterious diseases. I'm sure a lot of you may have heard of mad cow disease, that brain-wasting infection that did, in some cases, spread to humans. This disease is believed to have been caused by contaminated cow feed that had traces of meat and bone meal from diseased cows. And that's the thing about cannibalism. It's easier to transmit dangerous pathogens between the same species, so consuming a sick individual of your same species will more likely than not infect the consumer. And if cannibalism is widely practiced and accepted, like the foray in Papua New Guinea, uh, yeah, the whole population is at risk. Luckily, there aren't many known human communities that openly practice consumption of their own kind today, and for most of us, I'm sure we wouldn't partake in the practice of cannibalism unless we absolutely had to. 
Now, we can't escape this cannibalistic episode of Little Curiosities without talking about a few of the most notorious cannibals in our history. There is, of course, Jeffrey Dahmer and that kid Luca Magnata from the Don't F With Cats. Is it just me, or does Netflix have a knack for this kind of content? Anyway, I want to talk about a few other cases, the ones that aren't on Netflix, or maybe they are, I just haven't seen them. The first case is a bit close to home for me. Close as in a five-hour drive away from where I currently live in Stuttgart, Germany, in a city called Essen. Essen comes from the Latin word edere, meaning to eat, which is pretty ironic considering the man-eating story I'm about to tell you. <laughs> a story about a German man named Armin Mivis. Now, Mivis's cannibalistic fantasies were said to have been inspired by the Robinson Crusoe novel. Specifically, the part in the story where Crusoe saves a native Caribbean man named Friday from cannibals. Crusoe and Friday became friends because of this and have many other adventures. Now, Mivis was a lonely boy. His father left their family at a young age, and there weren't many kids his age in the area where he lived, meaning he spent a lot of time alone with his mother, and there seems to have been some mommy issues. He desperately wanted friends. But instead of saving them from cannibals, Mivis developed the idea that by consuming someone, they would always be close to him, and he would have them permanently with him. So yeah, this is when Mivis started to have cannibalistic fantasies. Later in life, in order to somewhat live out these fantasies, Mivis would shape the meat of animals into objects and form human bodies with marzipan, and then slash them open to make it look realistic. He would take pictures of this and then manipulate these images on a computer to make it look like he was working with real dead bodies. The real deal. And then Mivis discovered the internet, which, you know, is it just me or does the internet like make everything so much worse because people find communities that can justify pretty much anything they want to justify. And Mivis did this. He found a whole community on this site called Cannibal Cafe, which according to Urban Dictionary is a website created for individuals to meet and dine together on each other. It's kind of a cute slogan, meet and dine together on each other. And it was there in this internet group, this internet world, that other like-minded cannibals would chat about their cannibalism fetishes. Though most people participating in this site seemed to keep it in the role-playing world of cannibalism, Mivis said it was a way to make his fantasies real. He posted an ad on the cannibalism fetish website saying, I'm looking for a young, well-built male aged 18 to 30 to be slaughtered and consumed. Surprisingly, many people replied to the advert. Not surprisingly, they all got cold feet. Not cold like corpse cold, but cold like they chickened out. <laughs> One man named Body Jose almost followed through. Body came to visit Armin at his home, but after being tied up and almost killed, it became all too real, and he backed out last second. Mivis was upset, understandably, but he understood. He didn't want to kill anybody who didn't want to consent to the act. They had to be willing to die. So the search for a human meal continued, and he returned to Cannibal Cafe and found a 43-year-old Berlin man named Bird Jürgen. Now, Jürgen had posted an ad earlier saying that he wanted to be eaten alive, which meant that they were a match made in cannibal heaven. If such a place exists, I doubt it. They both corresponded for months, planning the event to a T, which included how to kill, consume, and dispose of the body. 
Jurgen also agreed for it to be filmed, which kind of surprised me because before he left to be a meal, he had deleted everything on his computer, all of the conversation that he had with Mavis. So he was trying to hide that he was going to be cannibalized. So why agree to leave evidence behind in a videotape? Um, I'm not really sure, but either way, for Mavis, it really wasn't about the killing. He saw it as a necessity, but not part of his actual fantasy. It's kind of like, I like eating hamburgers, but I don't want to butcher the cow. But for Mavis, there was no drive-through with literal finger food. Haha. <laughs> so this was the next best thing. Jürgen arrived in Rottenburg and picked up painkillers and sleeping pills, which, again, this confuses me because I had read that Jürgen said he actually wanted to feel pain. And he had a specific request. He wanted Mavis to bite off his, uh, sausage while he was still alive and conscious. Now, living in Germany, I have to say, Germans are all about their sausage, so this part of the story does make sense to me. And yeah, sounds like the most painful thing you can actually do as a man. But it seemed that Mavis bit off more than he can chew because the attempt to bite off said appendage failed, and eventually he resorted to using a knife. Jürgen said he wanted to feel so much pain that it would kill him. He said that he only felt pain temporarily when Mavis uh, was uh, biting his sausage, and he was disappointed when it didn't last longer. But again, he took painkillers before the ordeal, so I'm confused why he did that if he actually wanted to feel pain. But, you know, I guess we'll never know. Anyway, the two cannibal buddies split the Berliner's sausage after blanching, seasoning, and lightly frying it. But alas, more disappointment came when the meat turned out chewy and inedible. By this point, you'd think Mivis regretted bringing a friend home for dinner, huh? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> but this gruesome story doesn't end there. While Jürgen was bleeding out and fading in and out of consciousness, to pass the time, Mavis read him a Star Trek book, which I kind of find ironic because he was doing the complete opposite of living long and prospering. After waiting three, I'll bet, very long hours for his comrade to beam up to the other side, Mavis took the shortcut and slit his throat, and then proceeded to prepare his buddy's body much like a butcher would, with any kind of meat you'd find at a local butcher. Mivus even had all the equipment, complete with a meat hook, and portioned the meat, which he stored in meat bags in a hidden compartment in a false bottom of his freezer. The bones he buried in the garden, and then the deed was done. All that was left to do was to cannibalize. When Mivus consumed the human meat, he would make an event of it by lighting candles and using his finest china. He then served his friend with princess potatoes, Brussels sprouts, and a fine red wine. I think red wine goes with everything, especially human meat. I feel like Mivus could have gotten away with this act of cannibalism if he wasn't hungry for more. Dang it, Mivus, why are you so selfish for more human meat? Because even before he was done eating his first, uh, I guess we'll say, victim, he was looking for another willing participant on his favorite site. You guessed it, the Cannibal Cafe. What kind of world is he living in? Does it, Do you just think like cannibalism is like walking into the grocery store and just selecting another human for consumption and being like, all right, come home with me, round two. I mean, he got away with it the first time, but as you will find out later, he definitely doesn't get away with it the second time. Because this time, he makes a big mistake. To add credibility to his next ad, he just happened to mention how he had experienced killing and butchering a human body because, oh yeah, he's done it before, 
And this, of course, set off alarm bells, especially for one user who was only used to the roleplay type cannibal stuff on the site, and then they notified the police. Mivas's estate was soon raided by the police, who found his hidden freezer human meat storage compartment. Darn it. It wasn't, it wasn't hidden enough, Mivas. And uh, he tried to claim it was wild pork, but one policewoman who claimed to be an experienced cook said it didn't look anything remotely close to pork, which, of course, it wasn't. And although it may not have looked like pork, interestingly enough, Mivas did say later in a TV interview that human meat tasted like pork, but a bit stronger and more bitter. He had, after all, eaten 44 pounds of it by the time he was arrested. How are we feeling after that gruesome tale? Can we handle more murderous cannibal horror stories? Because I do have one more for you. This is actually one of the first cannibal stories I've heard of, and I found the story to be absolutely bonkers, especially since the cannibal culprit became a free man since the incident, one who was able to walk among us like a hungry kid in a candy shop. I first heard of Issei Sagawa, a.k.a. the Kobe Cannibal, from a Vice documentary called Interview with a Cannibal. And no, he's not called the Kobe Cannibal because he ate people like Kobe beef. It's because he was from Kobe, Japan. And the story seems way too insane to believe. And yes, like I mentioned earlier, in this episode, this story involves a Frankenstein mask. So uh, here's the story, as disturbing as it is. For Sagawa, cannibalism started as far back as he could remember. He claimed he had cannibalistic urges even as a child. You know that thing parents do sometimes? When they look at their kids, they're like, oh, you're so cute, I could just eat you up. I wonder if that's what sparked it for Sagawa. Uh, either way, he's had a craving for human meat for quite some time. Though Sagawa seems to have always been some kind of cannibal, at least at heart, the real horror story started when he was 32 and became an exchange student in Paris. A Dutch woman by the name Renee Hartvelt caught his eye, and they quickly became friends. But Sagawa had murderous intentions. On June 11, 1981, Sagawa lied and told Renee that his professor wanted him to record some German poetry, and he wanted her to read it. Now, this poem was in German, and it was said to be Sagawa's favorite German expressionist poem. And it's also said that this poem was about death, so it's extra disturbing. As Rene was reading this poem, in perfect German, mind you, Sagawa then snuck up behind her, grabbed his gun, and shot her in the back of the head, killing her instantly. She never suspected a thing. And I'm sorry, this is where the story gets pretty dark. Sagawa then continued to sexually assault the corpse, and then he did something really weird. He attempted to bite into her buttocks with his teeth, and he said it was way too tough and it hurt his jaw. Which, I'm like, Sagawa, of course it's going to hurt your jaw. You're not like some kind of predatory lion with really sharp, strong teeth. It's not a hamburger. So yeah, of course you can't uh, bite into her butt and just eat it from there. But anyway, he attempted this. And when he found out that he couldn't do it, he went to the store and purchased an electric meat cutting knife, which he used to cut the body up and store in his fridge. Another disturbing fact for you, as if there aren't enough, Sagawa learned how to butcher the meat while on a luxury boat trip to Greece. He met a butcher there, and during dinner on the boat, this butcher taught him the ins and outs of his craft. And after this cannibalistic event, when he was butchering Rene, Sagawa wrote a thank you letter to the butcher that he met on that cruise. Can you imagine? 
The butcher never wrote back, surprise, surprise, probably way too disturbed to even imagine that he helped this guy in any way. I will say that the Vice documentary does show pictures of this horrific scene, and I wasn't expecting it at all. And after seeing it, I was left feeling extremely disturbed. And you can watch it if you want to, so just be warned, Sagawa also published a book, and he was allowed to have images of the scene in this book. So another thing that he got away with, pretty crazy that these images are out there. I don't suggest you look them up, but you can. So yes, Sagawa had a fridge full of human meat that he was planning on consuming. The only thing left to do was get rid of the rest of the body. And you'll be happy to find out that Sagawa was caught in his attempt to dispose of the rest of the remains of Rene. He had just purchased two large suitcases to complete this task, and he was planning to dispose of the body in Bois de la Bonne Lake, which is a beautiful park in Paris. It's close to the Eiffel Tower and Arc de la Triomphe. So it's in a really touristy spot. And the first thing I thought of when I found out where he was going to try to get away with this, where he was going to dump the body, was, uh, you know there's going to be a lot of people there, right? And it was this choice, of course, that proved to be his downfall. It was also a very hot summer day in Paris, and it was 8 p.m., but when it's summertime in Europe, the sun is still up. I know this because I'm currently living in Europe, and it's still sunny at 9 p.m., and I'm so confused a lot of the time when I'm outside because I'm thinking, oh, I can probably sunbathe right now, and it's 9 p.m., and that's exactly what people were doing at 8 p.m. in Paris. They were out in the park, out and about, sunbathing, and here comes Sagawa pushing two huge suitcases full of human remains down a hill of the park towards the lake. Not suspicious at all. Being that it was super hot outside and he had some super heavy luggage, he was exhausted, so he paused to rest. And he then became mesmerized by the beautiful setting sun. Sagawa then suddenly heard a scream and turned to see a man opening one of his suitcases, exposing his dirty deed. Sagawa simply walked away from the suitcases and then went home, leaving onlookers to discover the gruesome scene, screaming, Meurtre. Meurtre. That's how you say murder in French. They're probably saying it a lot more uh, panicked than that, and probably a lot louder. What comes next shouldn't be surprising. The police raided his apartment four days later, and he was arrested. Of course, they found the human remains in his fridge and realized that he had eaten quite a bit of the body. He was then interviewed by a number of psychiatrists who concluded he was mentally insane, and he was then deported back to Japan, which I think was a bad idea because Japan concluded he wasn't mentally insane, he just had a personality disorder. And this just makes me want to scream, what the heck, Japan? Like, there was obviously something going on with this guy, and apparently it's okay to have a personality disorder and to shoot and kill someone and then eat them because... In Japan, they kind of just set him free. No treatment, no jail time, just back into the public. It was mentioned that his family had a lot of connections, and this could be a reason why he was set free so willy-nilly. But even so, that is like a huge public safety concern. What's even more disturbing is that Sagawa became somewhat of a celebrity. He was offered money to write an article about his experience, and he even wrote a book. And yes, this was the book that I was talking about earlier that had all those disturbing images in it and somehow got published. 
He even had a Lolita manga artist reach out to him and offer to make a cannibalistic comic about him, which, uh, if you don't know what Lolita manga is, it's kind of like those girls that are dressed up like dolls. They're pretty popular in anime, but it's incredibly disturbing to see this lighthearted cartoon comic that depicts morbid scenes of Sagawa's murder. And no surprise, this comic book horrified the anime fans, the anime community. But his musing didn't end there. He's also said to inspire the song Too Much Blood by the Rolling Stones. Some of the lyrics say, He took her to his apartment, cut off her head, put the rest of her body in the refrigerator, ate her piece by piece. The music video even shows a replica of Sagawa's apartment in Paris with a fridge full of fake bloodied body parts. And probably most disturbing of all, Sagawa starred in an adult film where him and the adult actress were filmed having a conversation where Sagawa tells her what he had done to Renee. He even gives her the book that he had published, complete with all those really awful images that she flips through. In a later individual interview, she is shown in, basically in a state of shock. Interestingly, though, Sagawa and the adult actress later became friends, and there's even pictures that show them traveling together, posing nude in public. Very interesting. All this to say, this is a man who murdered and cannibalized someone, and everyone knew about it. And he was now walking free and making a living off of the gruesome act. And get this. In the Vice documentary, he even states that he's worried his cannibalism might emerge again. Do -do 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 -do. And we will end this episode on that mysterious note. Just kidding. I will say that the last I heard of Sagawa, he had passed away from pneumonia in 2022. So you shouldn't be afraid of him sneaking into your room wearing a Frankenstein mask. Don't worry. Though it's definitely the stuff for nightmares. Okay, two words for you. Foot tacos. And yeah, in the beginning of the episode, I warned you that this story was coming. The story starts with the guy on Reddit, and he has a very interesting username, and I just can't bring myself to repeat it here. Uh, but if you look up guy who made foot tacos, you'll find the Reddit thread, trust me. You also must be 18 or older to view the post because, uh, you know, cannibalism. But anyway, we will call him Shiny because that's the nickname the Vice article I read the story from bestowed upon him, and he wants to remain anonymous, and I have to say... After reading the article, I don't blame him. So Mr. Shiny got into a motorcycle accident that resulted in his leg from the shin down being shattered to the point where he would never walk on it again. The doctor asked if he wanted to amputate, and this seems like a very unfortunate scenario, but this guy decided to turn lemons into lemonade, or feet into tacos, and his first question was, can I keep it? Now, as far as U.S. legislation goes, if you lose any of your own body parts, you have custody of it. All you need to do is sign a release form, and the doctor, after making sure the body part is pathogen-free, can release it to you. Shiny said he was able to do this because there are some religions where a body is preferred to be buried whole. So he was free to take home a severed leg doggy bag, a motorcycle accident souvenir. In fact, there are technically no U.S. federal laws preventing owning of any human body parts. Unless those body parts are Native American. The Native American Graves Protection Act makes it illegal to own or trade Native American remains, which makes me honestly feel sad thinking about the things that must have taken place to have this passed in the first place. 
However, in most of the U.S., aside from Idaho, it's technically legal to consume and own human body parts, unless you unalive the person you're munching on, in which case, straight to jail. I actually met a taxidermy shop owner who had, in his possession, some preserved human body parts. A few I won't mention here, but the one I will talk about is a plasticized human hand. Now, plastination is an incredibly fascinating process used to preserve bodies, most famously the Body Worlds exhibit, which I've seen, and it's super wild. They have animals and people in all these crazy poses with their muscles out, their hearts out, like holding their skin like a suit, and it's all plastic. It's also incredibly complicated, so I won't go into too much detail here on how the process is. Maybe that'll be a future podcast, but basically, it involves replacing all of the liquid in a body with plastic. Kind of like a life-size Barbie doll, though I'll bet more anatomically correct. Anyway, this taxidermy shop owner said he acquired them from a doctor friend who had passed on, not sure if that meant it was the doctor's hand or another person's hand owned by the doctor. Anyway, this hand was cut off at the wrist, complete with bright pink nail polish. Quite an interesting item in the collection, I will say. Also, I got to hold it. I didn't expect holding a deceased person's hand to be so emotional, but it really was. Hands tell us so much about who someone is, where they've been, how their life was. We hold hands of our family, our friends, lovers, children. The experience was eerily beautiful and personal, and it made me understand why students dissecting bodies in medical school covered the cadaver's face and hands. But enough about odd taxidermy shop experiences. Back to foot tacos. So keeping your amputated body part was as good as legal as far as Shiny and his doctor were concerned. So, after the surgery, the amputated leg was taken home. From there, Shiny invited ten of his closest friends, and I'll bet the most open-minded friends you'll ever meet, and invited them to a brunch. A brunch they will never forget. Because among dishes such as quiche, fruit tarts, and chocolate cake was a main course fit for the most ravenous of zombies, foot tacos. It sounds extremely disturbing to feed yourself to your closest friends, but uh, it is an ethical way to try human flesh, right? And I found myself asking myself, <laughs> if I was invited to this brunch, would I partake? And you know, uh, it would be rude for me to turn down such a rare opportunity where a friend is literally giving a part of themselves to you. I'd say I'd do it, but let's be real. I could be all talk. I might chicken out. Just actually thinking about it kind of makes me queasy. But if there ever was a person to make a cannibal meal and make it right, it would be shiny because he had one of his friends that was a chef prepare his uh, meat for the daring group. And the Vice article even has the recipe titled Human Shin Fajitas. I do like Mexican food. So that alone could tempt me. The star ingredient, three ounces of human calf muscle. Okay, so maybe it wasn't exactly his foot, but Foot Taco has a good ring to it. That was also the title of a lot of articles, but it was his calf muscle that was consumed. Shiny said that although most people have said that human flesh tastes like pig, he thought, after trying his own leg, that it somewhat tasted beefy. And I'm going to admit, looking at the picture of Shiny's cooked flesh accompanied with red peppers and onions, it doesn't even look like human meat. I mean, if I was served that at a restaurant, I would never know the difference. And I get it for those of you that are like, oh my gosh, this is so disgusting. Maybe eating your friend's foot 
might be crossing a cannibalistic line. But what if I told you that more people practice this auto-cannibalism than you would think? Remember, auto-cannibalism is when someone eats their self. So Shiny, when he took a bite of that first taco, was considered an auto-cannibal. There are surprisingly a lot of auto-cannibals out there, especially recent mothers. The secret ingredient to their cannibal craving? Placenta. The placenta is that organ that develops during pregnancy that connects the baby's umbilical cord to the mother's uterus. It's sort of a middleman when it comes to delivering the baby oxygen and nutrients from the mother. You may have heard the placenta eating craze around 2012, when multiple celebrities claimed consuming this baby organ helped with postpartum and overall health after giving birth. I myself can name a few people, friends that I know that have eaten placenta pills and also drank tinctures made from placenta. That might be a little less appetizing for me, but along with those people that I know, some people you may recognize that have eaten placenta are Clueless star Alicia Silverstone, Chrissy Teigen, Hilary Duff, and even some of the Kardashians. This is the most normalized self-cannibalism since biting your nails. And yes, biting your nails is considered auto-cannibalism too. The first report of placenta eating in medical literature is from 1973, and it was sourced from a Rolling Stones article in 1972 that speaks of a placenta delivery to a hippie commune where it was first steamed before being eaten by the mother. But eating placenta goes way far back before Rolling Stones even existed. As far back as ancient Egypt, where pieces of it were said to be soaked in milk and fed to the infant to prevent infant mortality. Not sure if that worked. I don't know if I'm going to feed placenta milk to my infant. <laughs> Thank you all for listening, and hopefully I didn't disturb you too much. Though cannibalism is very much taboo, I hope this episode made you realize that we may all just be a shipwreck or motorcycle accident away from becoming a cannibal ourselves. If you found this episode intriguing, please share it with someone who needs a recipe for foot tacos. But really, getting the word out there means so much to me. I love making all these episodes for you. Even if it's just give you some icebreakers next time you find yourself at a social gathering. Because if anyone is going to get the reputation of weirdest conversation starters at dinner, why shouldn't it be you? Make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode and comment if you are so inclined. See you next time. Ciao. Little Curiosities with Kendall Long is a Q Code production. Executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Alexa Gabrielle Ramirez. Edited by Ben Milchev. Music by Kendall Long and Will Tenby. Whether you're in a relationship, single, or recently heartbroken, you could be navigating some tough stuff. And it really can be challenging to do this on your own. We all need help when it comes to our relationships, very specifically, our love lives. I'm Jillian, and each week on my podcast, Jillian on Love, I share skills on how to strengthen our relationships, how to build a stronger sense of self, and how to heal heartbreak and choose better partners. Learn how to start making change today and search for Jillian on Love wherever you're listening now. Hi, just checking in and seeing if you might want to step away from the noise of the world for just a moment and connect back to you. If so, join me on my podcast, Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion, where we'll explore mindfulness, self-love, and personal growth as I share practical insights and tools to hopefully help inspire you to start to take charge of your mental and emotional well-being. 
Search for Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now.